Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on Progressive Radio Network. That's on line at prn.fm, Mondays at 10 a.m. And I always have to remind myself, that's New York time. We're totally global. Maybe it's evening for you. Uh, hey, how about calling in? Any Anybody uh, want to follow up on what I said last week or follow along with what I'm saying this week? 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. So anyone who wants to call in and comment, get online, uh, feel free and welcome. So on Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality. And you can catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is nancy.com. And last Monday, we got on a roll talking about how we are people. That sounds strange, how we are people. Um, you know, I begin, I, I teach a course in non-Western architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> in the architecture school. Currently, uh, cultural center of the world, Brooklyn. <laughs> How'd that happen? But anyway, I like to start by saying, who and what are we? Well, uh, we're, let's see, biological creatures that have arrived at our current state through a process of evolution, living in a physical world governed by the laws of physics, and we uh, have built cultures based on our resource needs and have a consciousness that derives from the firing of neurons in our brain. <laughs> and I pause and I say, how many people believe that? And uh, very, I, I'm, I'm proud to say very often nobody <laughs> or very few because that's a materialist description of who and what we are as human beings. And uh, do we really believe that? You know, is there a lot more? Are we, in fact, meaning creatures? And what does that mean? And how is it very different in, around the world? So I have a little questionnaire. I think I went through it on a previous show. You might find it in the archives. But I do a, a little list of uh, possibilities and give it to my students for assignment to bring in next week. <clears throat> and let's see if I can recall some of the choices are, uh, we were created by a creator who left instructions. And our job is to follow the instructions. Or we are materialist creatures, which I just described a moment ago. Or we are a condensation out of a universal oneness. A, you know, the consciousness pervades the universe and we are partaking of that. Or we are intruders into a natural flow of uh, processes of the earth and we should disturb those processes. 
as little as possible. Well, there are a few more of those possibilities. And what I ask the students to do is say, which one describes your belief of who we are? And they bring that in the next week and we talk about that. And so what I did last week was talk about this notion of who and what we are and looked at the five major Eurasian cultures. There are other cultures, and some of them are similar to some of these. But traditionally, in China, we see this notion that we are part of the flow of all things. In India, uh, historically, in Hinduism and Buddhism, a notion that we are the this world, our material world, is an illusion, <clears throat> and what we really want to do is come in touch with a transcendent oneness that stands behind it. With ancient Greece, we see the birth of the individual, but subject to fate. And in the West, a similar kind of individual, but challenging fate. <laughs> this, this challenging fate is a really, really cool idea. Uh, I Someday we'll do a show on a project I work on called Timeship, if you uh, you can find it at timeship.org, timeship like spaceship, and go uh, click on news, and you can find recently, for example, New Scientist, uh, one of the most prestigious science magazine, did a cover story on us uh, a couple months ago, and the people I encounter through working on this project have. Well, <laughs> to back up, I said the Greeks see the emergence of the individual, but subject to fate. And it's sometimes called the tragic tradition because we have this emerged individual. You know, we our identity is of ourselves as an individual rather than the continuity of all things or the continuity of our society. But that subject, that individual is going to die. So the ultimate uh, fate. And there are all these people today who are saying, well, why, we, let's fix that. <laughs> so and interestingly, if you go through the, the, uh, our, our heroes, <laughs> the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley billionaires, uh, one who didn't make it, Steve Jobs, but Larry Ellison of... Oracle and Sergey and Larry of, uh, of Google, uh, a lot of these people have been contacting their biotech colleagues and saying, what's this aging stuff? How do you turn it off? And their, their biotech colleagues reply, well, uh, that'll take a billion dollars. And then the response is, here's a check. <laughs> and so, for example, Google set up Calico which is funded at you know, around a billion dollars to find the, you know, to eliminate disease and eliminate aging. That's their goal. And it's, well, hasn't medicine been working on that for the past, you know, 200 years? Well, no, you know, it, it's, the traditional medicine has always accepted a, the aging process as natural. And yeah, you wanna, you know, uh, slow the aging process. You want to stay healthy as long as you can. You want to not extend life, but extend your healthy life. But what these people are saying, no, let's just turn the thing off. There are creatures that don't age, sharks. You find a huge old shark 
It could be 20 years old. It could be 300 years old. You know, at a certain point, they, they grow to a certain size, and then they stop aging. So some creatures don't age. And so what is it about those that do, and how do you turn it off? Well, anyway, that's a digression. This is freeform radio. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of digressions. We'll get back to guests in uh, in a couple of weeks. But <clears throat> this Western individual has this different attitude than these other than those in these uh, other traditional cultures. And one of them is that some Western individuals are challenging nature. You know, we have a technical term for that. It's called science. Science is the observation, study, understanding, and control of nature. And, in, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of a science buff. So strongly recommend it. CurseVileAI.net. I think it's .net. K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L. AI for artificial intelligence.net. So Ray Kurzweil is sort of the leading futurists of our time. His book on futurism, well, his latest book is called, I forget the exact title, but it's sort of like How to Create a Mind. <laughs> You'll find it on Amazon. And he's getting there. And, uh, you know, we've been hearing about artificial intelligence since, well, it's sort of brought up by Turing in the in the 19... 30s and 40s, but it's been a, a big, and, and there's sort of debate between Babbage and who's the woman who um, is the first programmer? Anyway, uh, so, you know, it's been debated over the centuries, but the it gets serious in the 1960s. In fact, <laughs> in the 60s, I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania studying architecture, and we had a townhouse with about five roommates. And they would, I think there are people still there in that building who are descendants of, <laughs> you know, these rotating roommates over the decades. But one of them, when, when we first uh, got, the, got the building, was a guy, Morton, forget his first name. Uh, but anyway, he was studying artificial intelligence at the University of Pennsylvania. So it's been around, and I've been as critical of it as anybody, but just, you know, they seem to be getting there. If you want to have fun, uh, go to, if you have a an Apple device, go to Apple's Translate uh, gizmo, or whatever they're called, and do a translation from English to Chinese and back to English, and see how garbled it is by the time it gets back. Then do it with Google Translate. You find that at translate.google.com, and it comes back as literature. I mean, it's uh, incredible. And this just happened in the past couple months that they radically improved it by using neural nets. So neural nets is having circuitry that you then give a task. You don't tell the circuitry how to do it. You just tell it whether or not it did a good job. And it keeps refining what it's doing. 
And so neural nets have been around as an idea for a while. It's one of the first ideas in artificial intelligence. It was crushed by Marvin Minsky, who saw it as competition for his brute force approach. And, you know, did Marvin Minsky do something evil uh, when he suppressed neural nets, which is now back again? And maybe it didn't slow things down because it turned out that neural nets wasn't going to get anywhere until computers were much more powerful and had much more data. Guess who's got a lot of computers that can be linked together? It's a little company called Google. And guess who has lots of data? Like, all the data there is! (laughs) Google! And so they've been... Uh, put this to work. They put together a team. It's amazing how these things work these days. There's, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful article. I don't really find myself reading the New York Times magazine, Sunday magazine section very often. But there's an article about this a couple of, well, a month or so ago in the New York Times Sunday magazine section on the new uh, neural net technique in translation And it describes uh, the team and how they did it. And so despite the fact that we had these giant corporations with, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars and, and tens of millions of computers that they can link together, when there's a task to build Google Glass or the self-driving car or this neural net project. The self-driving car was done at Google by Sebastian Thrun with 15 graduate students. Yeah, and DARPA, the defense organization, had been spending hundreds of millions of dollars over decades getting nowhere. (laughs) You might have read about it over the years. They'd have these self-driving car contests and People would enter their, you know, automated self-driving cars, and they would do it in the desert so no one would get hurt. And they'd take off, and they'd go about a mile and a half and <laughs> end up in a ditch. And suddenly, so Sebastian threw and said, we got to fix this. And they totally changed the approach, and now it's really happening. There are self-driving Ubers in, in various cities. Volvo is installing it in trucks, and we're all... You know, what's going to happen when, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of truck drivers lose their jobs, when hundreds of thousands of cab drivers lose their jobs, and it appears that it's getting very close? Well, it was done by these small teams. And so anyway, read this article in the uh, New York Times magazine. You can, of course, find it online. And... See how this small team did this job of totally changing this translation service. So anyway, uh, Google's putting together these teams to solve aging. So that's an example of how Western culture does not accept fate. (laughs) We'll fix it. And, you know, there's stuff you read about now like, can we change the laws of physics? And... You know, they know it's going to be difficult, (laughs) but it doesn't stop them from thinking about it. Anyway, um, so what I was talking about last week was how there are these different notions of who and what we are as human beings. 
and how they get embedded in story. You know, I talked about how different cultures, like to quote uh, Oswald Spengler, get a little academic-y here, uh, in Decline of the West, a culture begins by laying down its temple form and its epic poems. So <clears throat> for the West, the temple form is the Gothic cathedral. You stand in the nave of a Gothic cathedral and you can see the whole thing. You know, right away, you look up at those soaring vaults and you know the descendants of the people who built this thing are going to circle the globe and go out into space. You know, they've announced it in the Gothic cathedral. So the temple form sort of describes the spatial context in which people can move about. And the epic poem describes the moral sense of how they're going to make their lives. And so in China, for example, we see the Tao Te Ching uh, calling on us to put ourselves in accord with the flow of the Tao, which we can equate with nature, the flow of all things. And we see, for example, one of the favorite Chinese works of literature is Journey to the West, or Monkey King, in which monkeys, monkeys born at the beginning from a stone, and it's great reading. You know, I like to say to my students, if, you, if a Chinese child is under the covers with a flashlight reading, it will be Journey to the West, or it could be Romance of the Three Kingdoms. That's pretty big. It's three volumes, but boy, that's where all the Star Wars comes from. Empires and federations and foundations and rebels and all that. You know, that approach to history, which we saw in Isaac Asimov's Foundation and Foundation and Empire, etc., uh, is, is sort of pioneered in the Chinese work, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Anyway, Monkey is a superhero, but he... Um, it's kind of rambunctious, and he knocks over things in heaven and, you know, like palaces and stuff. And so Buddha has to put him in an iron cage under a mountain, and he's locked up there. And then a monk is uh, traveling, journeying to the west. So for China, the west is India to get sacred texts, Buddhist texts, to bring Buddhism to China. And Monkey hears him come and says, let me out. It's been predicted that you would come and you would let me out and I would guide you and protect you on your journey to the West. So the superhero in Chinese tradition works for the larger society and not out of their own inner volition. And in the West, the moral center is not in the society but in the heart of each individual. And so we see that in the <clears throat> epic poem of Percival, one of the Arthurian romances, the stories of King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table. So I talked about that last week. Let's run it through it again. And I want to see this week how that shows up in some movies. So Percival is a knight who's pure of heart, who always acts spontaneously out of his inner impulse. And on one of his adventures, he comes to the castle of the Fisher King, who has been wounded, and the wound will not heal. He's wounded in the groin, so that's, uh, he's lost his potency. And the, his kingdom is a wasteland, because the, for the kingdom to be vital, the king has to be vital. 
And so Percival comes into the castle. The king is brought down on a litter, and he is moved to say, what ails you? The words that would have healed the king. But for once in his life, he remembers the rules. And the rules say that you do not, a knight does not speak to a king until the king speaks first. And so he doesn't say anything. And so he has failed his quest. He does not heal the king. He's turned away. But then he comes into relationship with Conduir, a woman, his name, evoking guide. And after many adventures, returns to the castle, speaks the words, what ails you, heals the king, cures the wasteland, and completes his adventure. So if you think about it, that's a lot of movies. So I was thinking about movies and just this um, end of last week, watch the movie Sully. So Sully is the story of um, Chesley Sullenberger. And you might remember, if you're a New Yorker, <laughs> you'll remember. When was it? Um, 2009. My sister calls me up. And she lives over on the Hudson River. She says, an airplane just landed in the Hudson River. So what? That's not good. <laughs> so they uh, made a recent movie on it just last year. And the movie sort of jumps back and forth through flashbacks and stuff. But it presents Tom Hanks playing uh, Sullenberger or Sully. And we see him preparing, you know, going to the airport, getting on his airplane and, but it's with flashbacks, so it's already crashed. He's just getting on the airplane. Um, we're seeing, we're having the uh, NTSB hearings, et cetera. The movie jumps around, but what it presents is the plane takes off, 150 people, counting crew, and just coming out of LaGuardia, coming over New York, coming over the Hudson, it, there's a bird strike. It hits a whole flock of geese, and several geese go into each engine, destroying the engine. So the plane now has no power. And it, there's, um, it's in touch with the control tower. Should we try to return to LaGuardia? Can we make it to Newark? Can we make it to Teterboro? And Sully decides we're too low. We don't have the altitude to make a safe land. There's no power. Uh, but these things can glide based on its their forward momentum, but they need altitude because they're going, they're, they're dropping. He decides the only safe landing, he says, we need, we need open space. <laughs> and the only open space is that no highways available, <laughs> but there's the Hudson River. So he brings the plane down with a, a, quite a jolt, but safely, and it stays intact into the Hudson River. Everybody climbs out on the wings, and then you see New York at its best. Their, uh, the water ferries immediately and water taxis pull up to the plane. Every single person is rescued. A couple people have swam away from the plane. Bad idea. And within five minutes, there are New York City police divers jumping out of helicopters with their oxygen scuba tanks uh, 
uh, rescuing people, bringing them to the ferries. And, you know, that New York, within five minutes of a catastrophe, can have scuba police in the air and in the water. And I got a sense of that. Years ago, I was... <laughs> if you know anything about my background, it was just kind of weird. But we had moved to a new building, and it was a little bit of a crime problem. And we, my late wife and I thought we'd try something new. So we became... Auxiliary police, so that's volunteer. You go through a, um, a few weeks of training sessions, and you get a uniform, and your exact same uniform as the real police, except a somewhat different shoulder patch and no gun. And we would patrol our neighborhood once a week, and we'd also go to police intelligence briefings at our precinct. That was cool. <laughs> Well, the uh, terrorists are now hanging out at this coffee shop. You know, <laughs> I mean, you get this inside dope information that's going to the precinct. But anyway, found out these things like, um, you know, the I don't know if they still do because I know there's so few peers now. But New York uh, uh, Fire Department used to have the best and largest firefighting tugboats in the country. And if the Coast Guard, you know, had a really serious fire, they'd borrow the New York City Fire Department tugboats. So between the Fire Department and Police Department with their different capabilities of intelligence services, languages, uh, emergency services, really impressive stuff. But anyway, back to this movie. So we get what, what was the movie about? Well, it was directed by Clint Eastwood. So that should give you a hint. And we'll talk some more about some. Clint Eastwood movies, but Clint Eastwood uh, directs a movie in such a way that what we see out of uh, Sullenberger and his co-pilot and the the crew, the um, the the crew. What, a, what anyway? Uh, the crew are this total professionalism. Okay, step one, step two, step three. You know. Uh, try to restart the engines. Nope. Okay, turn on emergency power because, you know, we need to control the flaps and whatever, and we keep the lights on in the and in the uh, cockpit. And <clears throat> the stewardesses uh, have ever, directing everybody, you know, strap in, heads down, etc. And so you just see the smoothness of this total professionalism. And then they, the crew and Solenberger get everybody off the plane, and then he twice walks the length of the plane in, you know, three feet of water because the plane's sinking uh, uh, to make sure every single person is off the plane and then getting on, uh, on the shore then to do the count to make sure every single, which is very difficult because everybody's on a different on a different uh, ferry or taxi and some are going to New Jersey and some are going to Manhattan, but they get the count. 155, every single person is rescued with only very minor injuries. Then comes the hearings, the NTS, what, National Transportation Service Board, whatever, Safety Board starts their hearings. And, well, you know, you could have returned to LaGuardia. 
And he says, no, I couldn't. I, did, I had uh, two engines out. Well, our data shows you had one engine still working. He says, I know the engine was out. Have you, do we have the engine? No, it sunk. Uh, well, I'm telling you the engine was out. I was there. So we get this really, enough, you know, we can suspect that Clint Eastwood is exaggerating here. But this is now the competent individual person doing their job, knowing what they're doing, up against the bureaucratic organization. And the bureaucratic organization is walking through its stupid, narrow little rules and finding at fault the individual. And finally, in the last scene, in the almost last scene of the movie, they run a simulation, and the simulation shows he could have made it. And, um, well, so what? You know, that, you know, maybe you could have made it is not the basis of his decision. But then he shows the simulation was wrong. He says, wait 30 seconds before you start the return trip to an airport, because that's how long I needed to assess the situation. They agree, wait 30 seconds, run the simulations, and the plane keeps crashing. And then they get the word, they've recovered the engine, it was totally destroyed, it was not running. So he then gets even the NTS uh, National Safety Board um, acknowledges that he's a hero, and so Sully is our, is our hero. And then the final scene shows the real Sullenberger uh, with the, um, a lot of the people who had been on the plane having a reunion. So very feel-good movie, but very much what was it about? It was about the individual against the bureaucracy. Hmm. And, you know, uh, Percival against the rules of society. And since we're mentioning Clint Eastwood as a director of this movie, um, we watch him appearing in our culture. And so he was earlier in that musical, what, Carousel? And, or one of those musicals, I don't remember which one, never saw it. But he sort of came to our attention in the Spaghetti Westerns. So with director Sergio Leone, a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then there are some others he does, not with Sergio Leone, but he's playing a nihilistic uh, characters after the gold. But, you know, we sort of identify with him. And so he's, he's the good guy, bad guy, and then there's the bad guy, bad guys. And then he does a series, a whole bunch of Dirty Harry movies. You know, I... I have to confess to a, a guilty pleasure. <laughs> uh, but before I go on, let's uh, take a break. And uh, so this is John LaBelle on Visionaries, and we'll be back after a few announcements. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find you get what you need. You can't always get what you want. 
can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes, you might find Hi, welcome back. This is John LaBelle, and we are on Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network. You find us on, well, you must know that because you're listening, but we're online on prn.fm, and there's a whole bunch of other ways to get us. You can get us on iTunes. You can get us, next time I'll give the phone number, you can actually listen on your phone, and I guess, you know, if you can get your, if you're in the car and you can get phone service, you can also get internet service. So I, I actually, I listen to PRN all the time in my car. I have to confess I use a car occasionally. And just plug the phone into the car auxiliary system and, you know, we're on the air. So anyway, we're in New York time, Mondays at 10 a.m. You can find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. So we're talking today about this notion of the individual in the West, and we looked at Percival, one of the Arthurian romances. So we see in these tales of the Knights of King Arthur's Round Table, the sort of laying out how we're going to be human beings, how we're going to have our relationships. We see the emergence there of the first time of equal romantic relationships between men and women, a whole new idea introduced into cultural history. And we see here a, a sort of a, a literary description, how we're going to be human beings. And I just described how these show up again now in our movies. We continue these mythologies in our movie. Actually, let me digress. The, I have a colleague, John David Ebert. You'll find an interview with him on one of our back shows, and we'll do some more. And I was at an event, and Ebert was doing a presentation on Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. And he describes how Marlon Brando, Kurtz, is reading from the, um, the poem, The Hollow Men, either The Hollow Men or The Wasteland. And while he's reading that, we see, by T.S. Eliot, we see two books on his desk. One is Frazier's The Golden Bough, and the other is, what is it, Jesse uh, Watson, Winston, uh, the, from Myth, from Myth to Ritual, and these books sort of lay out what Coppola is doing in the movie. And in The Golden Bough, it opens with, well, in the abridged edition, it's like 12 volumes. You get the whole thing, but we, today we don't read anything anymore. But if we did, we'd read the single-volume uh, abridged version. But looking at that, we see the sacrifice of the king. In these Mesopotamian ancient cultures, every period of time, might be seven years, uh, the king is sacrificed and then there's a new king. And this is done in agricultural cultures because the sacrifice of the king is symbolic of the harvesting of the grain and then the 
death, you know, the blood running back into the ground and fertilizing it, and then the grain again next year grows again. After a while, some king comes up with the idea of, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we sacrifice a bull instead? And so just at the moment where the CIA assassin is about to kill about to kill Kurtz in the movie, they cut to the native tribesmen beheading a bull. So, uh, you know, right out of the books, and Coppola is showing us what he's doing and where he gets it. And with that, I started thinking, you know, that that's how we should be seeing movies. These movie makers are doing this. They know this material. They're putting it in their movies, and nobody is talking about it. And I said, someone's got to address this on a website. And I, I spoke to some people, uh, Richard Brown, for example. Uh, I wonder if he's still doing his course. He would do this course on movies at sometimes at NYU, sometimes at the New School. Uh, maybe you can look it up and see what he's doing now. But he would show uh, a movie every week and then interview a director or a star of the movie. And these were movies, top movies that hadn't come out yet. So this is really cool to take the course. So I used to say, if you go to the movies and there's some people that sit through all the credits, of which today there's now a lot, right, because of all the special effects people, the... You say, oh, those are Richard Brown students because he would require that you sit through all the credits. And the reason being, you know, respect for the people who made the movie. But anyway, he wasn't interested. So I ended up starting a website with, uh, with Ebert. It's called cinemadiscourse.com. A little bit intellectual, right? <laughs> but that's the only name we could get. So if we haven't been keeping it up to date, so you you find that there we're, we have not been reviewing current movies, but you can go through back movies and lots of classic movies, which sort of establish a mythological point of view. So started to think about movies in these terms. So if you see the uh, Clint Eastwood then goes on to do the Dirty Harry movies. So Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, the Enforcer, Sudden Impact, and The Deadpool are all in the Dirty Harry series. And what they're about is how... So Dirty Harry is a San Francisco policeman who's disgusted at the crimes done in... When were the, yeah, in the 1980s, 70s, and 80s, when there was a lot more crime in some cities than there are today. Some cities are as bad as ever in New York. They've gotten rid of 80% of the crime. How'd they do that? But anyway, the you know the, the the justice system is corrupt. The police are corrupt. They're not protecting the citizenry. And Dirty Harry with his Magnum Forty, what is it? Magnum Forty Four, <laughs> I think it is, uh, uh, has to uh, do it on his own. So again, the individual up against the system. And the individual is right and the system is wrong. And, you know, we get a little criticism of the machismo violence of these, of these Clint Eastwood movies. And then something interesting happens. 1993, Clint Eastwood makes a movie, In the Line of Fire. So, movie opens with Clint Eastwood is a um, working 
counterfeiting. So he is a Secret Service agent. And weirdly enough, as we know, the Secret Service does two things. Number one, protects the president. Number two, counterfeiting. Now, you'd think the FBI would do that. They should fix that one of these days. But that's what they do. Totally, these two totally unrelated things. So he's working counterfeiting. Why? But, you know, it's pretty low end of the totem pole for the, for the um, you know, alternative, the heroic job of protecting the president. Well, it turns out he's the only living Secret Service agent who lost a president. <laughs> he was on the bumper of—in in the movie— he was on the bumper of JFK's car, and he froze and failed to jump to take the second bullet. And he had been buddies, drinking buddies with John F. Kennedy, and now he's working counterfeiting. Maybe eventually he'll retire. But then they discover threats against the current president. And they find the apartment of the person making the threats, John Malkovich, and the, just for orientation here, Clint Eastwood is the agent, Frank Oregon, John Malkovich is Mitch, the bad guy, and Rene Russo is the, pardon the phrase, love interest, but also another Secret Service agent, very important. But when they find the apartment of Malkovich, who's the bad guy, they find all these clippings about Eastwood there. So he's back on the case now because there's a connection between him and the person threatening the president. So now he's out there, you know, running alongside the president's car and acting like, a, like a, an idiot, uh, saying, what are women doing here, you know, at, uh, in the Secret Service? They're now women agents. And they eventually are hunting down Malkovich, and the big confrontation is going to come at the Bonaventure, that modernistic hotel in Los Angeles. And, of course, you know, the system is telling him to back off, and he knows that he's got it right. And he's uh, at the—and Malkovich gets into the, into the banquet dinner with a gun because it's a plastic gun— just, you know, how he, you know, he's very clever about how he gets it in there. And um, Eastwood's got him spotted, jumps, takes the bullet. He's wearing a vest. And, of course, there's a big fight in one of those elevators at the Bonaventure. And uh, Clint Eastwood um, defeats the bad guy, gets congratulated by the president. And he and Rene Russo are now in him having come into proper relationship with a woman is now, um, you know, they're going to have a life together. I mean, direct straight out of the Percival myth. I mean, they might have just cribbed the whole thing and changed it from Arthurian night to Secret Service. I mean, it's the straight whole story. And then we see story after Movie after movie after movie. I mean, you just go through the list of um, of movies. Um, you know, it's it's, it's uh, Alan Ladd in in um, 
Shane. It's John Wayne in Stagecoach. It's Humphrey Bogart in the Maltese Falcon. It's Riddick. It's the Born Identity. It's Angelina Jolie in Salt. And so, interesting, you know, you look at Hollywood, and if we look at current politics, um, I don't think I'll get into politics on this show, but if you, if, you, if you look at how, can we use the words, left-wing Hollywood is, and how they're making these individualistic movies. I mean, every one of them is about how, you know, the left-wing would say, uh, we should trust to the system. We should have bigger and more government because it does the right things, takes care of and protects people. But all the movies they're making are showing that the establishment is wrong and the individual who's showing that they're poisoning the water, you know, that there's, uh, they're after the wrong bad guy, uh, that, you know. So if you look at these TV series where, like, um, um, Law and Order Special Victims, uh, that the higher-ups are saying this is where the evidence is leading, and then, you know, the cops on the case are saying, that's not my instinct. I think it's the other one. The other, the other one's the bad guy. And, and, of course, the cop is always right and the system is always wrong. That's the movies we make. That's the TV series we make. And somehow this, this um, uh, Arthurian... Western notion of the moral center in the heart of each individual is alive in our mythology, which I would say is now carried by our movies and our TV uh, to this day. And as I said last week, that's uh, what we see in Huck Finn. And there's this point where, in Mark Twain's Huck Finn, where Ernest Hemingway says, American literature begins with Huck Finn. And, okay, you know, it's, it's uh, we like that book. But then you read it and you think, what's going on here? And what's going on is that Huck and Jim are on the Mississippi, so they're rootless, this American, you know, rootless condition. They see all the weirdosities of the American psyche in the, in the towns and the characters they encounter on their trip. They, um, and Huck is struggling, realize he's doing a terrible thing. He's stolen Miss Watson's slave and helping him escape. Not only that, he's going to help Jim steal back his wife and child, another crime. And then he says these famous words, all right, then I'll go to hell. Uh, they were terrible words, but they were said. He knows what he's doing is wrong by the rules of society, but we know that his inner voice is a superior, um, a superior guide than the rules of society. So then, then we see something really interesting, just staying with Clint Eastwood. Um, so I uh, 
strongly recommend uh, attending the lectures, or you can listen to them online, of uh, Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman's a prominent American Buddhist scholar. He holds a chair in uh, Buddhism at Columbia University. He's founder of Tibet House. Hopefully we'll have him on the show sometime. And so, I've, you know, I've been to his lectures over the years. And Bob talks about what he calls a second renaissance. And by that he means, okay, uh, the West achieved an understanding and control of the material world. Buddhism achieved an understanding and control of the mind. What about a future in which we bring the two together? He refers to that as a second renaissance. So if we think about, um, wow, running out of time here. I have about six or seven minutes so very quickly, something maybe we'll do a whole show about. Uh, one way to think about Buddhism, that if you encounter someone that you have um, a rough time with, uh, they're acting badly. And so to unfairly over-characterize uh, some traditions, an Old Testament tradition would say if they take out your eye, if they attack you, attack them back, an eye for an eye. Uh, and then we have a New Testament tradition, turn the other cheek. Okay, but what's that going to do? Is, you know, th th there's a way of thinking, you know, uh, why is this person attacking me? What's going on with them? And so there's a notion in Buddhism of... Um, of right action, of a competency about the situation. So if you say to yourself, uh, this person's suffering, turning the other cheek, well, that won't help me, <laughs> and it won't help them. Uh, but what can I do to fix the situation? What can I do to help them fix themselves? Now, that takes real maturity on your part. You know, you have to uh, endure this person abusing you and exercise this um, not just better behavior, but a behavior that fixes it. Well, then we get another Clint Eastwood movie, Grand Torino, 2008. So the movie opens with uh, Eastwood... Uh, directed, but also starred in the movie. Now he directs, but he doesn't star in movies anymore. <laughs> He's way too old. But it opens at his wife's funeral. He's really stoic. He's a retired Detroit automobile worker, uh, owns a little house in a neighborhood that's going to pot, <laughs> uh, pardon the phrase. So he's very stoically at, the, at his wife's funeral, He's not his his family is there, you know, the kids and their and their new spouses, and he's really grumpy. He doesn't communicate with any of them. Uh, doesn't get along with the very young, inexperienced uh, priest. He's uh, Polish Catholic, and 
the neighborhoods being overrun by Hmong uh, refugee or immigrant uh, gangs. And so the gangs are acting badly. The police won't do anything about it. The, pri the priest is worthless. But then the Hmong neighbors uh, start inviting him over to dinner. And he, he doesn't get along with Asians that well. He's a veteran of the Korean War. But he's got some of his wartime guns in the house. So uh, he's sort of uh, warming up to these neighbors and his weird Asian food. And there's a young woman and young boy, uh, ch children of these neighbors. And the girl is getting into, you know, is being threatened by these gangs. And he comes to our rescue with his guns. The boy is getting beaten up, and he's sort of trying to point him in a job of uh, direction of getting a job. But the uh, the gang members are stealing the tools he gives the boys, beating up and raping the girl. So now he has to do something about it. Well, he's a Clint Eastwood. He's Clint Eastwood. So what we would expect, you know, but he's, he's 80 years old <laughs> or more. This is not Dirty Harry, who would just blow them all away with his Magnum 44. Uh, so what's he going to do? And how about right action? How about, um, you know, dealing with the situation as it is? Well, we saw at the beginning of the movie he goes to a doctor, and he's coughing all the time. So we know he has lung cancer. And he, <laughs> he's smoking. <laughs> and so final scene, he takes his dog, gives it to the Hmong uh, grandmother, uh, invites the boy over, locks him in the basement because uh, the boy wants to help him do something about the situation, and goes to the bad guy's gang house. And there, you know, very defiant, he's acting threateningly. And then he reaches into his breast pocket for his cigarettes. They think he's going for a gun. They open fire, kill him, and he solved the problem. He's had a painless death for himself. He, the, all the bad guys are going to go away for murder. Uh, he's now protected the among family, getting rid of the gang members. And then there they are at the reading of his will. He's left his house to the church, and he's left his tools and the Grand Torino to the young boy. So the Grand Torino, you know, where he'll symbolically carry on, but then more important, his tools, so he'll come into maturity and uh, have a good, meaningful life. So one more movie that we won't have time for that sort of, uh, you know, we sort of went through Clint Eastwood here and we saw the real arc of how we see ourselves as people is it evolving. And I began by talking about this Chinese flow of nature, the Hindu and Buddhists uh, joining with a transcendent oneness that stands behind all things. What happens if we can bring those into our own culture and merge those with this Western individuality? So I think that's what we see in uh, the movie Gran Torino. 
we sort of see the ultimate uh, telling of the individual Western tale in Clint Eastwood's In the Line of Fire and sort of bringing this then to a Buddhist point of view in Gran Torino. So, okay, this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. Hear us every Monday at 10 a.m. if you're in New York. Globally, you got to figure it out. <laughs> What's the time frame for you? And uh, we're on prn.fm and catch our back shows online uh, at visionaries. P no visionaries. Podbean, p o d b e a n is Nancy. dot com. You find all our back shows. Uh, really terrific stuff. Interviewing fascinating guests, John Ebert, who I mentioned, uh, Natasha Vita Moore, leading transhumanists. Uh, lots of in- interesting figures, and lots of interesting uh, discussions. So let's wind up. And see you next Monday. Oh.